Amen. Well, why don't we pray together one more time? Heavenly Father, we we're so grateful today now for the opportunity not only to return to you with song, but also with preaching and with listening and with growing. Help us to grow, therefore, toward you, to fill up the fullness of the stature of Christ. Help us to do our part in this body, in our church, Heritage Grace Community Church, to grow to a mature man, to leave behind the elementary things and to press on towards maturity. And we know, Lord, what your word says in that solemn passage in Hebrews 6.3, this we will do if God permits. And so, Lord, we ask of you, may it be that we would grow in respect to salvation, that we would grow into a mature man, mature men and women of Christ. Lord, give us a heart to yearn for this growth and give us a mind to apprehend, Lord, the truth that we need in order for us to grow spiritually. We ask for your grace now. We need your help because as Jesus has taught us, apart from him, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. I was informed by the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 as I meditated and thought about and contemplated what it is that Hebrews is talking about in our passage today, but I would remind you of the words of Jesus in John 15 verse 8, these all-important, all-significant weighty words that Jesus uses here in John chapter 15. Verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. In other words, the Christian life is a call to productivity. It is not a call to religious stagnation. It's not even a call to a religious or a spiritual status to say, oh, I've become spiritual now. I have a little religion in my life now. I'm doing the Christian thing now. It's much more than that. It is a pursuit. It is a trajectory. It is a maturation process. It is a, in terms of a theological terms, it is progressive sanctification. And that is exactly what God's will is for us. This is His will for us in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, our sanctification. And that's exactly what Hebrews has in mind when it says that we are to press on to maturity, or as it says, In verse 11, we have much to say concerning him, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For, though by this time, you ought to be teachers. In other words, 
there's expectancy that is laid upon us. Now, the essence of his metaphor in verses 11 to 14 has everything to do with either spiritual maturity or spiritual infancy. Now, nobody knows the joys and the jubilation that comes from watching a child mature more than a parent so that every step, as small as it may be, every slight evidence of maturity is cause for great praise. First step, first time, first word, right? Mommy and daddy are competing. Hopefully it's mommy, not daddy. Hopefully it's daddy, not mommy, right? You want to hear what is going to be that initial sign of maturity, growth, health, whether it's the first time your baby started walking or started talking or started drawing or started saying its name or or started saying the word Jesus or started writing, whatever it may be, every step along the way is is great. It's an appropriate occasion for praise. But you give it five years. You give it 13 years. And if your child is still trying to, to scribble the ABCs, there's a problem. There's probably some abnormality. There's probably some disorder going on. And I know you think I'm, I'm about to make the immediate connection to Hebrews, but that is not the connection to Hebrews yet. Because it's not that the Hebrews never went towards maturity ever. That's not the right analogy. But it is as if a child were to begin to show maturity that is fitting for a 5-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, and then sometime in the process, somewhere in the process, you begin to see a regression. You can home one day and suddenly that 15-year-old boy is back in the crib. What? Now we've got real problems. Now you have a real crisis of parenting on your hands. But you see, that is precisely where the analogy connects with Hebrews. Because these Christians, it's not that they never became mature or they never, they never took steps towards maturity. Oh, they did. From all intents and purposes, it seemed like they were well on their way. And then through the passage of time, the pastor comes back, reflects on the status of his people, and realizes there is something dreadfully wrong. There has been an unfortunate regress. You see, this is why we have to be vigilant over our souls, over our church, over our theology, over our doctrine. And that really is what I'm going to hone in on today. We've been doing a series of messages on spiritual maturity, or at least this is the second one. Next week is going to be uh, the third one. That makes it a series, right? <laughs> Next week's message is so important. You better come back. This is my church growth uh, scheme right here. You better get back here next week for next week's message because it's really the crucial one. It's the point of contact. We had a point of contact today in Sunday school. What is a point of contact? I don't know. I just coined the phrase. I'll try to make the best out of it. It really just means when the rubber meets the road, right? When we go from the abstract to the concrete, when we go out of the realm of ideas to real life now, and how this all applies in your life and in mine. 
We did that in Sunday school today. Of course, we're going through systematic theology, but uh, uh, we, we, we got out of just the, the, the mere talking about doctrine and theology, and we began applying it to, well, what about this, this situation and that situation? What about when I talk to my neighbor in this conversation I've had? It was real life dealing with our theology and how it informs our life. And that's exactly what we want to see here. How does our theology inform our walk with God? Practically speaking, how does it manifest? You know, one of the things that we have to learn from what Hebrews is talking about here is that Hebrews is not unique. The situation that is before us here in the book of Hebrews where you have apparently a congregation, or at least a large part of the congregation, that has begun to undergo spiritual regression, in other words, going backwards in your sanctification, is not unique to Hebrews. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and one more passage I'll show you in a second, shows us a very similar situation because I want you to understand it can happen in more ways than one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, bearing the same mind, the same type of heart, says, and I, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, watch this, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able. What's the dynamic there? It's different than Hebrews. So you have a different church dealing with a different uh, uh, situation, uh, concerned with different issues, different doctrinal issues, and yet we are facing the same dynamic, a spiritual regression, spiritual regression. There, the cause for their immaturity was factionalism. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Identifying more with a person than with Christ, right? Even then, it was a Christonomism that was going on there. It was a Christ only, right? I am of Christ. People were using that card. But uh, Galatians chapter 1 uh, gives us another glimpse. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. You know this passage. You could probably, many of you can probably recite it from memory. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I think this is amazing. One of the reasons why I think this is so telling and so amazing and is so instructional for you and for me is because this is apostolic church planting. I just spent uh, three days with a wonderful, precious brother of mine, Joseph Urban. You know him, missionary that we support. He is a missionary church planter. They're on their way for their seventh church plant in Mexico. Hundreds are literally coming to Christ. No exaggeration. But this is apostolic church planting that is going horribly wrong. Something has gone horribly wrong. Look at verse 6. I am amazed. You are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel or for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, how many books recently being written in that exact vein of thought? Little boys going to heaven, people having visitations in heaven. You know, o o Oprah will have those people on her show all day long. 
You get a Bible scholar to talk about? Oh, no, he doesn't know anything. We need a five-year-old to come and inform us and teach us what, the, what, what heaven is really like because, you know, the Word of God, I mean, that can't be a possibly a reliable guide. Just maddening, maddening world that we live in. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what, you, that what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, notice the need, this repetition now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. That's a remarkable statement. For some of you that maybe struggle with kind of being a little too hard on people and stuff like that, uh, understand there comes a point in time where the anathema of God is necessary. Oh, and it's breathtaking, and and it's sobering, and it's daunting, because the word here, he is to be accursed, is an imperative. It stresses the church's moral obligation to pronounce a person, a movement, a church, apostate. You've gone so far, you are no longer in the camp. And we have a moral obligation to determine those parameters. But later the apostle is going to go on to tell them in chapter 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Foolish Galatians, immature Corinthians, spiritual infants in Hebrews. You're starting to see the pattern? The Bible is very serious about a Christian's relationship to theology and to spiritual maturity. We are not allowed to stay where we're at. It's not okay not to be growing. It is not okay for you to relax, take your foot off the pedal, sort of put, the, put your Christian walk into cruise control and just coast. That is not okay. The fundamental identity of a Christian is a mathetes, a disciple, where we get the word math, where we learn. We are being educated by God. We are growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept, truth upon truth. Our knowledge of God is expanding because in heaven, our knowledge of God will be eternally increasing. If you can fathom that. I can't fathom that, but that's true. Edwards called it God's eternal increase. Oh, it's glorious. Um, What we have in front of us, therefore, is really a two options. Either excel in doctrine or increase in spiritual malnutrition. I use malnutrition because he's talking about milk and solid food. But that's really it. So he gives us several alternatives to help us to see this. Number one, either aptitude or apathy. There really is no middle ground. Look back at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... So I'm making a big deal out of the word time, chronos. In other words, something has happened where there has been an elapsing of time. This is so easy for us to apply to our own very heart, our own soul, our own spiritual condition. Just ask yourself, how long have I been a Christian? And what are the level of things that I'm interacting with at this stage of my Christianity? I've been a Christian now for about 20 years. And now, 
looking at my life, I have to be honest and, and, and make an assessment and look, am I interacting with the types of things that a 20-year-old in Christ ought to be interacting with? Or am I still stuck in the rudimentary, or as he says, the elementary principles of the oracles of God? This is heart work time, folks. We need to examine ourselves because look at the obligation, the necessity placed upon them. Though by this time you ought to be what? Teachers. Wow. He's saying enough time, and I don't have an actual time for you. I can't tell you it's been five years, it's been 13 years, it's been 15 years. You have to just assess over the totality of your Christianity. And there is a bit of a, a hyperbole here, uh, as many commentators have pointed out. He is, in one sense, exaggerating. He's saying you should all be competent to teach. He uses didaskalos, this idea of a, a formal technical teacher, but he's not using it in a formal technical sense. He's just saying, look, guys, you guys should know the Word of God enough so that you can teach other people. It's that simple. And so, number one, let me give you two factors because we have to ask the question, how did this church get here? How did this congregation arrive to such spiritual immaturity? How did it happen? Two things I want to observe. I already pointed to one, time. So turn with me to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 5. In the Bible, we have a relationship to time that is undeniable. In other words, the believer is constantly to be thinking of time, and the concept of time can take on different meanings, different emphasis, different nuance, different shapes, different things, okay? We have a reference to discerning the times, Matthew chapter 16, Verse 3, that's speaking eschatologically. We should understand the eschatological times in which we live. Also, there is an understanding of the sociological, economical, and cultural background in which we live. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, we ought to discern the age, the anios, another time reference that we live in, but it's speaking more of this this uh, fallen evil world, this evil age that we live in. Again, discerning the type of times that we're living in. Also, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, we are said to make the most use of our time. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, and in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, we are told that we have to strive with all of our might to use up our time effectively but we live in a culture that is so precise at getting us to waste as much time as possible. Teenagers are walking around with this little glass oracle in their hand called a cell phone. And this thing, it just they just sit there and that's all they do all day long. Have you noticed that the attention deficit that's going on in our culture right now? Many teenagers, because they're bound to this, or this glass oracle in their hand, they can't even make eye contact with a real human person. They're waiting for, you know, robots to communicate to one day. Human people, is, 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 they're, they're unfamiliar with it. This technological singularity that's happening in our culture is frightening. You've got teenagers murdering their parents for taking away their little glass oracle. It is terrifying 
what's going on in our culture. This is a huge disconnect. And it's all geared to getting us to waste our time. But time is of the essence. Time can be your enemy if it's not your friend. If you're learning to waste your time, oh, as one theologian said, oh, alas, the hourglass, she is the enemy. Time will work against you if you are not, Ephesians chapter 5 or 16, redeeming the time. Right? Aksagaratsa, Greek word that literally means purchasing the time back. Everything in the Bible, the emphasis is time is a wasting. Time is fleeting. And so James says, what is your life, the totality of your existence on planet earth? It is a vapor that appears for a little while like a mist and then vanishes away. You see these people smoking their electrical vapors. I don't even know what they're called. What are they called? This vapor cigarettes are smoking now. So glad they didn't have that when I wasn't a Christian. I would have probably, anyway. Uh, but just like the vapor that comes out of those e-cigars or whatever, that quickly, your life will vanish away, folks. We will not be on the scene for that long. And let me, let me tell you something. God is no longer looking at those great Puritan heroes that we have. He's no longer watching Spurgeon. His, his race is over. The heroes of the past, they're in glory. It's our turn. And God is wanting to see, what will this generation be like? It was Jesus who said, will I even find faith on this earth when I return? Or will we drown in the ocean, the deluge of triviality that our world is skilled at deceiving us with? We have to make the most use of our time. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, I made you go there, verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk. The word walk speaks about lifestyle. Not as unwise men, but as wise. You want to be wise? Making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. See, it's not a neutral situation that we're in. If you say, well, I'm just not going to be as hardcore as those people. I, I, I don't want to be labeled fundamentalist after all. I don't want to get too serious about this thing. Right? Be warned that what your only option is, is an altogether different trajectory. You're not on flat ground. You're on a hill. So you put your car in neutral when you're on a hill. That doesn't mean you're not going anywhere. You're going somewhere, but it's not good. It's the same thing with our walk. We're not on a flat ground here. You pop it in neutral, and you're going somewhere. And according to the Bible, it's not good. Because you're going to go backwards. You're going to regress. Second thing, not only... Do we have to pay attention to the time? But we also <clears throat> have to be resolved to teach. And you may say, oh, here we go. There's a pastor. This is what he does. How does he expect us to do it? 
Now, my friends, you've got to understand that teaching here, again, not in a technical sense, we are all called to teach in some capacity. It doesn't matter what it is. Teach your children. Teach your wives. Teach your neighbors. Teach unbelievers evangelistically. Teach one another in practical, informal settings. How about Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 5? Have Bible studies, family Bible studies. But probably the most important passage, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, because we don't want to trifle with our time. We want to make the most use of our time. But in order to make the most use for our time, it's not that just we want to be doing stuff. It's that we want to be doing stuff effectively. And so Romans chapter 15, verse 14, this all-important one-another passage of Scripture here, you hear us talk about the one-anothers, the one-anothers, the one-anothers. Our sister Gigi is uh, preparing a lady study on the one-anothers of Scripture. So vital, so important for us. And maybe no more significant verse than this verse right here in Romans 15, verse 14. Listen to this. Concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Who I want me, who I want admonishing me is someone that is both morally and intellectually right. They got to be full with goodness. In other words, their motive is right. They have the proper Christian ethic to inform my Christianity. And they also have cognitive capacity. They have the theological know-how to instruct and to counsel me. And so who do I want admonishing me not a person who says, oh, I got a word from the Lord for you. Okay, it better be the word, though, <laughs> right? It better not be some extra biblical thing that you think you need to tell me. But more importantly, filled with all knowledge. That means you got to be competent. You got to be competent. The phrase in Hebrews here, you ought to be teachers, suggests that there has been enough time that has elapsed and that by now they are ready to be able to instruct others, let's say, on the most basic rudimentary principles of the faith. And so write this down. Make a mental note and talk about it today at dinner when we fellowship. Can you, in your spiritual condition right now, can you explain to somebody the gospel? We do this in church membership. You want to be a member of our church? You need to be genuinely born again, converted. You need to have a genuine understanding of the gospel, and you need to be able to articulate the gospel to people. I mean, those are kind of the starting points. And so, are you able to do that? Are you able to explain the basics of what the gospel is? Their, their sin, their misery, their need of redemption, the cross work of Christ, their need of repentance and faith. Are you able to walk a person through that? If not, then some aspect of you falls into this category where it's time to do some real self-evaluation, real heart work to say, 
man, I don't know. I've been a Christian now for many years. Why can't I explain this to people? Now, I know, and let me back up and let me qualify because pastors die the death of a thousand qualifications, but let me qualify it anyway and say, I understand that we're not all at the same level of learning. We're not at at the same level of competency. I know that we all, maybe you have a learning disorder. Maybe you're not a good reader. But i got to tell you, be careful because the flesh is a deceiver. Because it will take a legitimate issue like that and it will exploit it to get you off the hook. To do the things that God wants you to do for your own good. You know, for many years, I sat under a dyslexic pastor. Severe dyslexia. He can't read street signs. He couldn't read. I remember one time we were working at his house. We were always working at Trent's house. But uh, we're working at his house, and um, um, we were ministering to a, a teenage boy that parents were forcing him to go to church when he's gothic, dark, kind of satanic-looking, you know, type thing. And he was there helping us. His dad forced him go over there and help Pastor Trent, you know. And he was over there, and Trent had me read to him um, what was on the, the, the concrete bag for mixing cement because he couldn't read it. And that boy sat there and looked over and goes, wow. I think it dawned on him he really cannot read. And you know what? But let me tell you something about that pastor. He read everything that he read through audio. I read books for him on audio so that he can go take them home and study them. And this is back on cassette tapes, so it's not as easy as downloading something. You got to pop in the tape. You got to rewind it. And you know how that was. Not quite eight-track, but still <laughs> not quite convenient either. Every commentary he was reading on tape, every theological book, every systematic theology was read to him on tape. He would have to read it on tape and follow along or else he could not read it. But let me tell you that that brother preached the Word of God. He didn't allow his handicap to hold him back. So be careful that your handicaps do not become an excuse to get you off the hook. Oh, I'm just not like you guys. I don't read very well. Okay, well, work on how you read then. Because we're talking about treasure, right? That's like saying, I don't know how to use a shovel and a pick very well. Well, become skilled at it because we're talking about mining out the treasures of the Word of God. That's why it's so important. And when he says teachers, he's saying we should be able to engage in the ministry of discipleship. Who are you discipling? Somebody. You've got to disciple somebody. Every husband in this church has to be discipling his wife. If not, you're in rebellion to God. It's that simple. If you're not washing your wife with the water of the Word of God, you are in rebellion. You are this microcosm of of the church. You're like a little mini church in your home, but the pastor is absent and he's abdicating. That's like going to a church with a pastor that don't want to preach. That's the husband that will not teach his wife the Word of God. So I know that gut check, right, guys? But that's what we're called to do. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. I want you to see the teaching, teaching, teaching 
I know that what I just said will do me in as far as how to grow a big church. Because what I've been told to do by a lot of even good people is, no, 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 market, market, market. I don't want to market. I'm not a marketer. I didn't go to school. Well, I didn't go to school, but I, I didn't go to school to get trained to be a marketing genius to fill up the pews and to fill up the tithes. That's not my purpose in the kingdom of God. I am to teach, 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 teach. I sat with 50 men in Mexico, Joseph Urban, myself, Tim Conway. We were talking about 50 brothers, and they were asking us question after question after question after question of what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be a ministry. And I said, if you get in a room for 10 hours and study, and if you get lonely and bored, you're not called. It's that simple. Because I feel that. I feel that I could be out doing other things. <laughs> I could be out, you know, my wife, we could go out and do something. I can. I got eight hours of study tonight, and I just can't go play around with everybody else. If you get bored and lonely in your study, you're not called to be a pastor. You might be called to be a motivational speaker like many pastors are today, but you are not called to be a biblical pastor. Look at the way that Paul viewed this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. This is the principal nature of his calling. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. And then, where is this energy? Marketing? Church growth methods? Worship music? No. For this purpose I labor and strive according to His power which mightily works within me. This is why the preaching of the Word of God is not just like any other feature in the church. It is, the, it is the main thing, brothers and sisters, to have me come up, and you're, you're stuck with me, okay? So if that's not a deal breaker for you, and you want to continue on here, you're stuck with me preaching, and that means the main thing. Pastor Chris and I are totally devoted to this. That the main thing of all ministry is the propping up of the Word of God for proclamation for the church and that that is the central calling that I have. I'm not an economist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not here to meet your felt needs. I'm here to minister to you, yes, but above everything, I want to say at the end of my life, oh, what did he do? He proclaimed him. He admonished every man. He taught every man in all wisdom. He presented, he, he presented every man complete in Christ on that day so that when your eyes meet my eyes and we stand before the bar of judgment and we stand before the throne of Christ, we stand before the bema seat of Christ and I look at your eyes and you look at my eyes, I did not trifle with you. I wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. I wasn't trying to endear myself to everybody, but I preached the Word of God and I let the chips fall wherever they may, and oh, brothers and sisters, I haven't been at this for very long, but I've been at it long enough to know that I've been through Hades and back, it seems. It's been war. There have been tears, broken friendships, broken churches, 
There's been divisions and schisms and, and, and there's been factions and there's been discipline and there's been hurt and pain, but it's all been worth it because this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. We're supposed to strive for the purity of the local church. So, I feel like preaching today, it's maybe it's because we have a baptism. The next thing is not, it's either going to be aptitude or apathy. Next one, either progress or regress. Four things are important. Number one, notice what the text says. Go back to Hebrews because every single one of my points, and this is the way you ought to preach the Word of God, is that every one of your points, no matter how sub-point they are, should be rooted exegetically in the text of Scripture. So the first one is this word, need. Need. Their need highlights their spiritual lack. In other words, but it is pejorative. We say, well, we, don't we all spiritually lack? I mean, aren't we all in need? Yes, but in the context, in need is being used in a pejorative fashion. It is a bad need. It is an unhealthy need. It is a teenager back in the crib still needing Gerber food. That's a bad need. That's not something praiseworthy. That is shocking and shameful. Same thing going on here. Their need was shocking and shameful. So the word need highlights their spiritual lack. The word again, you see that? The word again, palin, highlights the spiritual redundancy that they need. They need again. So this is unnecessary repetition. This is more work that didn't need to be done because it was done initially, but because of their dullness of hearing, they let things go by the wayside, right? There, now you need to be redundant. The next thing is spiritual limitations. Their spiritual lack, their spiritual redundancy, and their spiritual limitations. How do we know that? Because of the phrase here, the elementary principles. Interesting phrase because stoicheia is a word that just means rudimentary things, basic teachings, elementary principles here of the oracles of God, something just basic, rudimentary, the ABCs. And so they're limited to the ABCs. So it's like the author is saying, go back to verse 11, concerning him, that is Melchizedek and how that relates to the priesthood of Christ, concerning him we have much to say. In other words, there is so much that you want to unload on these people, but they can't do it because they become dull of hearing. And because they're dull of hearing, we need to go back to the ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You cannot advance them even if you tried. It's, it's, it's really terrible because it shows the, the abnormality where the mind that is not being sanctified by the knowledge of God is stuck. You're in a rut. And it's, it's difficult to bring people out who have had a doctrinal aversion to the gospel for their whole life. They don't want to grow. They don't want to learn. They don't want theology. They don't want doctrine. Sadly, so many churches today are even encouraging this state of mind. And it's so grieving to the Father. It's grieving to the Father because as I read to you from John the Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. 
And if my word abides in you, what, right? That's what Jesus said. If my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. Last one, spiritual ignorance. You know why I say that? Because the phrase, the oracles of God, tan, lagion, tutheu. The oracles of God refers principally to Old Testament revelation. And what's going on here is that who more than the Hebrews should have a grasp on Old Testament revelation? But you know what? Let's be honest today, folks. Let's be honest today. Of all the parts of Scripture that Christians have come to be, the majority of our ignorance surrounds, if we're honest, the Old Testament. Who can tell me how many books are in the Old Testament? Who can tell me the books in order? I can't. I'll try, but I can't. And that just shows that from memory, we're not doing a good enough job of catechizing ourselves to the degree that we're able to have a grasp on God's revelation, to understand the great redemptive epochs of time, to know what it is that God was doing through Abraham, to know what it is that God was doing in the Exodus, to know what it is that God was doing through the Davidic covenant, and to to know what it is that God was doing in the exile and the captivity. What is all this talk? You read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You hear about Assyria. You hear about Babylon. You hear about Egypt. And many of us, if we're honest, a lot of the time, we're lost. We we don't know what time period we're in and what the author is talking about. And so, again, this is heart work time. But you know the problem with all of that is it leaves us And this is why I love Reformed theology. Amen? Because Reformed theology, as the Puritans and the Reformers themselves would say, get at the Scripture at their most root form. They they, they want, in other words, the exegetical value of the text. Nothing like Reformed theology gets you to, to enlighten your mind, to grow in wisdom and knowledge, to understand and have a grasp of the revelation of God better than that. Better than that. I, I, I don't want to go on with that. Lastly, what it, what it results in is this alternative of either substance or surface, or we should say substance, not surface. In other words, God wants to reveal His heart to us. He wants to reveal His mysteries to us. He wants to show us great and marvelous things. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, because that's my job too, you know. As an ambassador of Christ, as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd of the sheep, my job is to set before you great and marvelous things, and it all has to do with theology. So if you have no savor if you don't have taste buds for theological truth, then it's not going to be palatable to you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that this was his calling. This was what he was called to do. Remember, he says in verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. That's to be a minister. Watch this. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable 
riches of Christ. That's what we're dealing with Sunday after Sunday. Great wealth, mystery, all oh, the mystery being revealed to us. Maybe what we need is an Edwardsian resolution. I've read this resolution to you before. Jonathan Edwards, back in the, in the 18th century, said this as a young teenage boy. This is what he said. Resolved. This was his resolution, right? To study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. That is so convicting, right? This teenage boy, this is before Jonathan Edwards became Jonathan Edwards. This was just a young man that loved the Word of God and was enthralled with the glory of God. And he said, this is what i got to do. If I don't do this, I won't do it. This is what I need to do. I need to study the Word of God so steadily, so frequently, so constantly that I am able to plainly perceive that I am growing by the same. He took his spiritual maturity very, very serious. I don't need to talk up Jonathan Edwards if you know anything about Jonathan Edwards. Let me end this on a redemptive note. Because throughout redemptive history, the people of God have often apostatized on this note of undermining the Word of God, the knowledge of God, loosening up their grip on the truth. Hosea chapter 4 Verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord, O Israel, sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness, no kindness, and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 6, he says, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Why are so many people capitulating to the culture today? Why do we have to have the Truth and Love Conference today? Because people are capitulating to the culture. They are bowing the knee to Baal because long ago, that's not where they started, long ago they rejected the knowledge of God. And God says, religion is not enough. Yeah, but I go to church. Yeah, it's not enough. Hosea 6, 6 says, I delight in loyalty, not sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. You can go to church until you are blue in the face and be completely irreligious and unpleasing to God. Isn't that terrifying? Because if you surrender the knowledge of God and, oh, praise God, that's not His will for us. His will for us is that we would be fruitful, that we would increase in the knowledge of God. In the knowledge of God, we gain wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. He wants to illuminate our minds. So I leave us with this somber warning because I have to, because this is what Hebrews is about. Did you ever stop to pause, my dear friends? Did you ever stop to pause? What is the context of Hebrews? Yes, I'm doing a series on spiritual maturity, but what is the context of Hebrews? Look with me in chapter 6, please. 
Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits four huge explanatory clause. Please look at the text. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have made were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Terrifying text. It is saying you can come so close to the light, like Judas. You can eat with the light. You can touch the light. You can be with the light for three and a half years. You can look at the light in the eyes. You can kiss the light on the cheek and still not be in The warning of Hebrews, the the supreme warning of Hebrews is that we better take heed to what we have heard in the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Father, I confess, we confess, there are no super Christians among us. We are weak. God, we are Fickle. One thing, one bad day, one bad phone call, one bad providence, one bad situation. And our faith is in turmoil if we do not cling to you. And so, Lord, would you please make us Psalm 1. Have us to be planted, rooted, grounded, that the roots would go down deep by the rivers of water so that we will not wither but that in every season of life we will bear God glorifying fruit and that whatever we do spiritually speaking we will prosper that's what we want we want to prosper by glorifying you by good deeds In Jesus' name, amen.